0: From the opinion pages of The Wall Street Journal,
1: this is Free Expression with Jerry Baker.
0: Hello and welcome to the Free Expression podcast from the opinion pages of The Wall Street Journal. I'm Jerry Baker, editor-at-large of The Journal. If you're not already a subscriber to Free Expression, please do sign up at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you do your listening. This week, atrocity in Israel and war over Gaza. Most of us are still trying to absorb the full horror of what was the worst single episode of the murder of Jews since the Holocaust that took place in Israel last weekend. The incursion into Israel by Hamas terrorists and the bloodlust on which they embarked resulted in the deaths of around 1,200 Israelis. That's the latest estimate. Many of them women, children, elderly. Another 150 or so are believed to have been kidnapped and taken across the border into Gaza. And those numbers, both the deaths and the hostages include, of course, a significant number of American citizens and citizens of other countries. Israel has declared all-out war on Hamas and is carrying out a campaign so far mostly of airstrikes on Hamas targets in Gaza, which Gaza authorities say has also resulted in the deaths of many civilians. So what happens next as we only beginning to try to understand the geopolitical implications of these extraordinary events. We're going to try and explore that this week. Will Israel conduct a full-scale ground invasion as many people expect and a reoccupation of Gaza in pursuit of its objective of destroying Hamas? Could the war spread to other parts of the Middle East? How involved was Iran in Hamas's atrocity? And what role is the US playing in all this? With major wars now underway on multiple continents around the world, is Pax Americana dead forever? I'm joined this week by Michael Oren, former Israeli ambassador to the United States former member of the Knesset, and also an historian who's written widely on Middle Eastern history, including Six Days of War, an account of the conflict between Israel and its neighbors in 1967, and Power, Faith, and Fantasy, History of U.S. Involvement in the Middle East. I should say we recorded this early on Wednesday, New York time, that's uh, Wednesday afternoon, Israel time, where Ambassador Oren joined us from southern Israel, very, very close to the Gaza border, where, of course, many of these attacks took place. And uh, our conversation was repeatedly interrupted, as you will probably hear and understand, by barrages of Hamas rockets coming over where he was staying and his need to retreat to the safety of a shelter but we're very grateful that he was able to join us. So this is my conversation with Ambassador Michael Oren. Ambassador, thanks very much for joining Free Expression. Good to be with you. Thank you. Let me begin by expressing my deepest sympathy and condolences for the horror that has been uh, visited on your country and your people in the last week. It's not often that words fail us, but the scale of this is just unimaginable, and uh, you have our deepest sympathy. Thank you for taking the time to join us.
1: Well, it's a grim and determined time in the state of Israel, I say. We all know people who have been killed. We know families that have been wiped out. Yesterday I heard that a a woman who grew up with my children, she and her husband, and their three young kids, beautiful family, were just uh, wiped out, terrorists came into the house and shot them. This morning I learned that the two sons of the rabbi who wedded my daughter, two young men who were married with kids, the day of the war, got up put on uniforms on their own initiative, went down south, and they didn't come back.
0: I think you are now in Ashdod, where some of these atrocities occurred. Can you just talk about what it's like there at the moment?
1: Well, I just came from Ashkelon and Ashdod. These are the two major cities (laughs) in the south. Both are well within range. We just, uh, coming into Ashkelon about an hour and a half ago, there were several rockets. We visited uh, Barzilai Hospital, which is an extraordinary institution which operates under fire, dealing with hundreds and hundreds of casualties. And parts of the hospital are actually armored, protected Against rocket fire, but parts weren't. The terrorists fire at the hospital on purpose, and parts of the hospital were destroyed. Then we came to Ashdod to participate in the Shiva mourning ceremony for a family of a 19 year old woman soldier who was killed on one of these uh, Kibbutzim battles. Now we're about to go in there now. We'll go to several of these Shivok today. And all the while, you just hear stories. A friend of mine called who had a son in the army who was taken to Kibbutz where this massacre took place because they needed help in removing the bodies and taking pictures of the bodies. And he said to me, I sent my son into the army and he came home a completely different human being, Radically changed him. So this is what's going on here. At the same time, Israel is preparing the next phase of this war. And that's why I say it's grim and determined. The determined part is that we've called up something in the order of 360,000 reservists, which is going to bring our total military force up to around a half a million. The size, you know, comparably, that's roughly the number of international forces invaded Iraq in 2003. And we are poised to undertake what I assume to be a large scale
0: ground incursion into Gaza to rid Gaza from Hamas. So that's the objective. And Prime Minister Netanyahu obviously has spelt that out. What does it mean? And again, know you're an historian of warfare in the Middle East. You wrote a very well-known book on the Six-Day War. You spelled out the objective to destroy Hamas. What does that mean? What will that require in terms of what, what the U.S. military will do? That's the, precisely the question in everyone's mind. This would be the third time that Israel
1: would conquer Gaza. Israel conquered Gaza in 1956 during the Suez campaign. And then again in the Six-Day War, in both cases, it was an operation that took roughly a day, basically a day. Uh, This is not going to take a day. Gaza is, for one thing, more densely populated. Uh, Hamas will often say that uh, it's the most densely populated area in the world. It's not. Tel Aviv is almost twice as densely populated as Gaza is, but it is very densely populated, and especially, you know, the urban areas. And moreover, Hamas, Islamic Jihad, the other terrorist group there, have mined and wired and booby-trapped and enfiladed every possible meter of Gaza. So going into this area is going to be very perilous and costly, both in terms of our soldiers' lives, but also in terms of civilian lives, as the Hamas and Islam Jihad excel in using human beings and their own civilians as their human shields. In addition to all of these other challenges, these are men's challenges, we have the hostages. And Hamas will be using the hostages as human shields. And there are diplomatic uh, complexities in that some of these hostages come from different countries. Countries. Apparently, reach about 14 of them come from the United States of America. By most reports, 14 citizens of the United States are held by the terrorists. And the terrorists will be using them as human shields. Just yesterday, they said that for every bomb that falls on Gaza, they will execute the hostages. That certainly indicates the complexity. So this is an immensely challenging environment for any army to operate in, particularly the Israel Defense Forces, because we have a strict uh, moral code that the army host to, and we operate under a microscope, an international microscope. And I was saying that during President Biden's speech last night, and I've been uh, involved in U.S.-Israel relations for many decades, both as an historian as well as a practice practitioner, and I don't remember a speech like that in terms of you know, its passion, its commitments, but it did have one not-so-failed caveat. He said, well, the U.S. Army, like the Israeli Army, operates according to the law, and we expect the Israeli Army to operate according to that law, unlike the terrorists, which we don't, meaning you have a green light to go into Gaza, but you've got to be very careful to limit as much as possible the collateral damage to Palestinian civilians. Politically, the president was saying, listen, I got
0: a lot of pressure from my own party about this. You Israelis have to help me to help you. Yeah, and what we've seen in the past, Ambassador, when Israel has uh, mounted these incursions, Lebanon against Hezbollah in 2006 and Gaza actually against Hamas in 2014, seen in the past is, you know, international opinion in both cases is... Initially supportive, maybe, because of the incidents that led to that. But pretty quickly, that international support, that international endorsement dissolves quite quickly as, you know, Hamas is very, very good at exploiting problems. We know, quite frankly, that that it does place its military capabilities in areas where there are civilians. Civilians die. That becomes a huge story. Everybody says Israel's got to stop. And the pressure becomes irresistible, and, and particularly after 2014, you know that kind of ended inconclusively, I think it's fair to say. I mean, I know Israel says it, it managed to eliminate a lot of Hamas terrorists. Obviously, this scale of this atrocity is so much greater than anything we've seen in the past. But how much do you expect that to be a factor again, the sort of pressure on Israel – as this war progresses.
1: We've given a certain amount of grace here. We've paid for it with an immense amount of blood, but the grace is time-limited. Already I was being asked on the BBC last night whether Israel in blockading the Gaza Strip and preventing you know, water and food from coming in is not guilty of war crimes. We're already being accused of war crimes by the European press, and it will change. It depends on whether they come up with what we called the Kvarkana syndrome, and I'll explain what that means. Uh, Israelis know what this means, and I'll explain it. Okay, back in 1996, we had an opportunity operation against Hezbollah in Lebanon called Operation Grapes of Wrath. You may not be old enough to remember it. Uh, Grapes of Wrath was the only Israeli operation named after a line in the New Testament. <laughs> they named it and then figured out it didn't come from the Old Testament. And it was kind of funny, except that we lost the operation because one day an Israeli tank shell hit a UN outpost in Kfarkana in southern Lebanon and killed 100 refugees. And that changed the entire narrative of the war. Before that, we were the victims. And then after that, we were the perpetrators. Go ahead 10 years in 2006 during the second Lebanon war. I was in that operation too. I was in both operations. And I was driving in a Jeep along the border with the New York Times reporter. And he's telling me that, we, you know, international opinion is with us and we have a lot of time to keep fighting Hezbollah. Yeah. Uh, and I said, yes, unless we come up against the Kfar Khanna uh, syndrome. And, you know, as it happened, the very next day, the same happened in the same place. And Israeli shell hit a building and killed 70 civilians. And the entire international narrative turned against us. We became the bad guys. So we take a situation where, tens of thousands of Israeli soldiers, tanks, infantry are making their way through a densely populated Palestinian area with two million Palestinians in it, the chances of encountering another Farrakhan incident are very high. You're up against the law of averages, and the law of averages are working against you. So I'm acutely aware that we are operating against a clock, and that clock is, what can I say, it's advancing.
0: Given just the scale of this massacre, like nothing we've seen, you know, since the Holocaust in terms of single episode loss of life of Jews, you have to assume that the domestic political pressure and we know how divided Israel has been politically, domestically, will be very much in terms of demanding the prosecution of this war to the maximum. One does not have to assume it's a
1: fact. Listen, we've had now five rounds of fighting with Hamas and Islamic Jihad. And every time the percentage of Israelis who do not want to go back to the status quo anti rises. The last time we fought them was in 2021, I was in government, and the level was about 80% of Israelis were against a ceasefire. Now I would say that's about 98.5% of the people are against a ceasefire. And yes, there's zero willingness to go back to the status quo anti, on the contrary. People are demanding a change and they're aware of the price, uh, gentlemen. They understand.
0: We're going to take a quick break there. When we come back, I'll have more with Ambassador Michael Oren on the atrocity that took place in Israel last weekend and its implications for the Middle East. Stay with us. WSJ Special Access gives you a front row seat to some of the Wall Street Journal's most exciting content, like The Quirkier Side of Life, a new series that features the fun, surprising stories our reporters come across. The chief executive walks 10,000 barefoot steps every day. He recalls stepping on a bee, which put him off earthing for a couple of days, but he got back to it. Check out the quirkier side of life on WSJ Special Access, only for WSJ subscribers. You're listening to Free Expression with Jerry Baker. Don't forget, you can listen to the latest episode anytime on your smart speaker. Just say, play the Opinion Free Expression podcast. Now, back to Jerry Baker. I'm back talking about war in the Middle East with Ambassador Michael Oren. Let me ask you about Iran. It was very striking on Tuesday listening to the president of the United States speak. As you say, he gave a very, very forceful, almost emotional and moral denunciation, obviously, of Hamas and what had happened. It was striking that he didn't mention Iran. We, the Wall Street Journal, have reported that the Iranian regime was directly involved in the planning and the preparation for this attack. Again, I know that's been denied... By Jake Sullivan, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Although they also acknowledge, of course, the close links between Hamas and Iran. What's your sense of what's going on here? So an observer like me from here... Knowing how close the links are between Hamas and Iran, it just seems inconceivable at the minimum that Iran would not have been very well aware of this, what was going to happen, presumably given the sophistication involved and some of the things we're learning about it. Iran looks likely, given what we know about what it's done for Hamas in the past, have been involved. What's going on here when we seem to get these denials of what seems to be a pretty logically obvious state of affairs? Well, I think I'm not going to speak
1: for, for Jake Sullivan, but what he's basically saying is we have no evidence. But the absence of evidence is no positive proof. There's no denial of a positive proof, right? Norgation negation of a positive proof. We are working assumption that Iran is deeply engaged here. And may have directed this through the RGC we the Al-Quds Force. We know that Iran supplies most of the rockets that are fired at us by Hamas and Islamic Jihad. And those that aren't supplied by Iran are engineered by Iran. The Iranian-trained Palestinian engineers. So Iran is involved. It's around with money, and it's certainly involved with training. So you connect the dots, okay? You, you don't have a smoking gun. And I don't know if it's a bad image giving this war, but you don't have a smoking gun. But those dots create a pixel image of a deep Iranian involvement. And I think that the president, to give him his due, was implicitly saying this. He was intimating that, you know, we May not have evidence of this, but we know Iran's about, and that's why we're moving ships into the Straits of Hormuz. Not only opposite the Lebanese coast, the Sixth Fleet is demonstrating, but the Fifth Fleet is demonstrating opposite you know, the shores of Iran. They're not doing that because there's no evidence. Clearly, there's a, a heavy suspicion. I'm not privy to the intelligence we are sharing with the United States about the extent of Iranian involvement.
0: What does that mean in terms of the Israeli response? I mean, is it possible then to essentially to eradicate, to eliminate Hamas in a way that the prime minister has set out as the again, I'm not suggesting all-out war, but without in some way dealing with the Iranian paymasters and the Iranian puppet masters. I personally
1: don't think so. I'm not a representative of the government anymore. I've long been an advocate of hitting the head of the stake and not the tail. We've been playing by Iran's rules now for a very long time. Uh, Iran sends its proxies to send rockets at us. We shoot back. We get condemned as war criminals. Iran gets off scot-free. Actually, it was the previous prime minister, Naftali Bennett, who began to change that policy. I've long been in favor of every rocket that comes over Israel. We should retaliate. We could deal with Hamas whenever we want to because they're not going anywhere. But now that we're fully mobilized and have a certain degree of international banking, we should tackle on the far greater threat of Hezbollah. Hamas maybe has 15,000 rockets. Hezbollah has 150,000 rockets. Uh, many of them are accurate.
0: While completely understanding what you're saying and the justification for it, doesn't that mean essentially an all-out war in the Middle East, which could drag in other countries, including possibly the United States?
1: But it may even happen already. They've already fired at us. They've already fired the first shots. We had three soldiers killed yesterday by Hezbollah. How much
0: provocation do you want? What's going on up there? Actually? I wanted to ask you that. I mean it seems to be sort of sporadic, rockets being fired, Israeli forces going in and taking out some of the forces. Is that going to escalate? Is Iswala gonna take the opportunity for an all-out? And we as we know they are much better armed. Vastly and also better trained.
1: They've been fighting in Syria for years. These are very skilled fighters. A much greater threat, by the way. I mean the exact same jihadist mentality. And they would do to the to our you know our inhabitants of the north of the Galilee what Hamas did to the inhabitants of the south. So we're dealing with the same type of you know species here that are much. Much more heavily armed. I think they're testing us out. They're testing us our readiness. They're telling us our willingness to engage because Hassan Nasrallah, the head of Hezbollah, will be very hard-pressed, you know, to sit in Beirut and sip tea while Israeli forces are crushing Hamas. And what will his world say to him if he just sits back passively? And so there's going to be tremendous pressure on him to act. The question is, do we take the initiative? We give him the initiative. You know, I'm an historian, so I always have to fall back on history. In 1973, we tried to gain American and international favor by not launching a preemptive strike against Egypt and Syria. And Israel has regretted that decision every single day since
0: then. Right. Quickly, I want to ask you where this leaves the wider strategic picture. This obviously seems like one of those transformational events in Middle Eastern history. And again, as an historian, you know that. The approach of Prime Minister Netanyahu, since he took office at uh, start of this year, has been to continue this, essentially, the kind of almost ignoring the Palestinian problem. I I interviewed him a year ago where he said exactly this, that the inside-out approach, as he calls it, seeking bilateral deals. Obviously, you've had the Abraham Accords, the big elusive one that he was looking for with Saudi Arabia. And that was supposed to marginalize the Palestinians. It was supposed to guarantee Israeli security in this much wider network of arrangements across the Middle East. Where does all that stand now?
1: Well, I think it can stand very much, I think, in terms of Israeli public opinion, it's going to deepen significantly any resistance to to what the West called the two-state solution. Because uh, on the West Bank, Judea and Samaria, as we call it, you have a Palestinian Authority that is headed by a gentleman who is now in the 18th year of his four-year term. And Mahmoud Abbas won't stand for re-election because he knows Hamas is going to win. So if you have a Palestinian state, it's going to fall to Hamas within a very short order of time, especially if there's any Israeli withdrawal. We actually keep Mahmoud Abbas alive. And what's happening now in Gaza would be, you know, magnified tenfold if there were a Hamas state in Judea and Samaria and Jerusalem. Imagine this. And Israelis are not, not stupid. They understand that. But I think that if there'd be some creative thinking for a change on the part of our allies, particularly the United States, and saying, okay, this is two-state solution is not going to happen, but you could improve the situation on the ground different ways through uh, federal solutions, through autonomy solutions, cantonment solutions. There are different ways you could go if you get off of unworkable formula, which has failed now for 30 straight years. I mean, I was an advisor to Yitzhak Rabin. I've been involved in personally every peace effort here of the last three decades, I will tell you there's actually no chance it's going to happen. And I think the people, even in the president's staff, understand this. They understand it, but it's, there are political constraints on the American side as well. Go tell the progressive wing of the Democratic Party that you're not going to work for a two-state solution anymore. Um, very difficult. And keep in mind, it's apples and oranges. Hamas is not a partner to peace. Hamas comes out and tries to destroy every effort for peace. The, the, the Oslo process that I knew in the early 90s was basically undermined by Hamas bombing attacks, uh, one of which killed a close family member of mine. So Hamas is not pro-peace. Even if you were to create peace with the Palestinians, say, in Judea and Samaria, it would actually it would make Hamas, this was possible, make Hamas even more belligerent
0: not less so. In that context, what was the objective here and why now? I mean, is it just time and chance to, again, to sort of quote sort of biblical phrases or do you think this was obviously took enormous planning? Yes. And obviously we know they're constitutionally committed to eradicating every Jew from the face of the earth. So presumably that's part of the explanation. But what's the particular strategic motivation for what's happened?
1: Oh, I think it's about, as it always is, about popularity. They have a lot of problems at home this rising opposition to Hamas rule, rising, very sharp. They're oppressive. They don't care about their citizens. And they want to maintain their popularity in Gaza. They want to increase their popularity in Judea and Samaria. But I think you really have to look at the impetus behind Iran here. And Iran had several interests and had several fears that motivated them to start a Middle Eastern war. One was they saw weakness on the part of Israel. We had internal divisions over the judicial reform. They saw a reticence on the part of the United States to get enmeshed in further Middle Eastern conflicts. They very much feared the Israel-Saudi treaty, the impending treaty. Not only because they would face a joint Israel-Saudi strategic front, but they very much feared Saudi nuclearization. And I have to say this without sounding too political, they feared the return of Donald Trump because it was Trump who did not want to renew the JCPOA. He, he canceled it. And it was Trump who assassinated Qasem Soleimani. So in order to take advantage of the opportunities and allay the fears, the Iranians concluded, let's just start a Middle East war that will completely destabilize the region. And in fact, they've done a pretty good job now. No one's talking about that
0: Saudi-Israeli peace treaty now anymore, are they? And nobody wants to dig too deeply into this right now. There's a, We've got a war to fight. You're going to ask about blame. <laughs> You're going to ask about blame. Everyone asks about blame. Yeah, I mean, there's going to be huge recrimination. They're starting. They're starting. Yeah. Many people have compared this to 73 and the Yom Kippur War. And we know what happened to Golda Meir after that. How
1: did this happen and what went wrong? There are many things that are wrong. There's going to be investigations afterwards. In Israel, no one's above those investigations, the findings, there will be consequences, and far-reaching and across the board. But I will tell you, the basic thing that went wrong was the same thing that went wrong in 1973, was that there was a preconceived notion. In 73, was that Egypt and Israel was so humiliated in 67 that they would never again mount an attack. And I was privy, this I was part of the government because I was involved in the Gaza issue when I was in government. The conception was that Hamas wears two hats. It's a sovereign and it's a jihadist organization. It's a terror organization. If we incentivized Hamas to focus more on its sovereign cap and less on its jihadist cap, that would redound to our benefit. So we enabled the Qataris to dump a lot of cash in the lap of Hamas. We enabled 20,000 Gazan workers to come into Israel on the assumption that Hamas wouldn't want to start a war because it would lose a lot. Those workers were getting big salaries by Gazan standards, and the conception was wrong. We forgot with what we were dealing, uh, which is a vicious, medieval, barbarous, jihadist organization and that doesn't care about its own population. I don't even sure they care about their own earthly existence. They don't. I was a student of the great Middle East historian Bernard Lewis, who used to say about these gentlemen that mutually assured destruction is not a deterrence for them, it's an incentive. And I wish I could take credit for that. I didn't say that. But here's an example of it. Doesn't Hamas know that in killing 1,200 Israelis, that they're going to pay the maximum price? And I don't think they care.
0: Ambassador Michael Oren, at this incredibly difficult time, we really appreciate you joining us. Thank you very much. And please stay safe. And our best wishes to you, your family. Take care, everybody. Be well to you too. Thank you. Well, that's it for Free Expression this week. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. Please do join us again next time when we'll have a, another look at some of these huge issues that are shaping the world. In the meantime, have a great week. Thank you and goodbye.